Now what's the word? Democracy. 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 You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. The seeds you sow will spread democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. Welcome, everybody, to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM. I'm your host, Ruth Newman, and I am very fortunate to bring here today Kim Wyman. She is the Republican Secretary of State for the state of Washington, and she is now in her second term of office. So welcome, Ms. Wyman. Oh, thank you. It's great to be on. And we are going to spend this hour talking about what Washington has been doing now for years, and that is universal mail-in voting. You have a Master of Public Administration degree. You are a Washington Certified Election Administrator, and you have worked in elections for the past 27 years, overseeing over 100 elections at the county and state levels. That is very impressive. Can I ask for starters, what got you interested in elections? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it started back when I, uh, my husband and I moved to Washington State. Uh, he was in the Army, and uh, we were stationed here at Fort Lewis, and I was expecting my first child. And I got a job in the county auditor's office. And here in Washington State, that's the local government office that does elections. And uh, about a year and a half into my tenure in the recording division, I became the elections director. And found the, the passion that uh, I really wanted for my career and, and knew how important elections were. You know, let's face it, if you do elections, you are the one who is in charge of making sure democracy continues. And uh, I love the profession and kind of had to run for public office to move up in the ranks. And uh, here we are. Very good. You are indeed the linchpin for the state of Washington. How long has the state of Washington had universal mail-in voting? Well, uh, we officially became a vote-by-mail state in 2011 when our legislature basically required all the counties to be vote-by-mail, but that was after a five-year move toward it. In 2005, the legislature allowed any county to move to vote-by-mail if they chose to, and that came out of a very close governor's race, in fact, the closest governor's race in the country's history. After 2.8 million ballots were cast and we had two recounts and a court case, the winner won by 133 votes. Oh my. Don't recommend that <laughs> in terms of uh, uh, public confidence because of course, just like the Gore v. Bush election of 2000, when you have a close election, everyone scrutinizes everything and uh, you see all of the things that didn't go perfectly well. But uh, out of that experience, we learned that we couldn't do a complete poll site election and a complete vote by mail election at the same time. Uh, we had about 60% of our voters who chose to get a ballot by mail every election. And and uh, that was a tipping point for us. And so, uh, so we've had a lot of experience with vote by mail. So that means that your goal was to increase the security and the efficiency of 
the voting process by switching to mail-in voting? Absolutely. You know, Ruth, you're hitting it on the head. It, it's uh, it's the challenge of voting by absentee or by mail is that you're really increasing the accessibility for voters. They are able to get a ballot delivered to their home. So when you do that wide ex, you know, expansion of accessibility, you have to build in the compensating controls to be able to withstand the criticism. You know, how do you know that they didn't stuff the ballot box? How do you know that the election wasn't rigged? Um, so you have to have time to build in those security measures like we have here, where we check every signature on every return ballot against the voter registration signature on file. Um, that's a really good security control measure. And, and it took us time to build those out. I can imagine. Can you just explain for my listeners, what is the difference between absentee and mail-in voting? Because here, here in Kentucky this year, we had, for the first time, we had no excuse absentee voting, but it was only set up a couple of weeks before the primary. So it was a little bit uh, slipshod. <laughs> so what is the difference? I think if you're going to distill it down, the difference between an absentee ballot and a vote by mail ballot is an absentee ballot typically is requested by the voter. And a, a vote by mail ballot is usually the, the state has moved to or the county has moved to vote by mail ballots, so they're preemptively sending every voter a ballot. Um, and, and I think that's the rub, and I think where that's where the partisanship kind of comes in. And I don't mean it to be just Republicans, because as you move further east across the country and you look at where states were in 2019, there were Democratic and Republican states that had excuse requirements for absentee voting. You had very low percentages of ballots cast by mail in blue and red states. I know a lot of people have tried to make it partisan, but, but it's really a bipartisan thing. And I think it's a West Coast, East Coast thing. Western states embraced wide absentee balloting, universal absentee voting, if you will, very early on. Uh, in the early 90s, our voters could request to be a permanent absentee voter for every election, and uh, all they had to do is send in a form. And so, so we've seen that expanse happen over, you know, the 93 to 2004, whereas you have states on the East Coast where it's very difficult to, to be issued an absentee ballot. And how long did it actually take you to convert over statewide? Many years. Uh, like I said, we started in 1993 and we started to see an uptick in voters choosing to receive an absentee ballot every election. And in, I was at the county at that time. And so from 1993 to about 96, we went from about 10% of our voters casting a ballot by mail to over 60% of our voters receiving an absentee ballot every election. And, you know, that's a tremendous change. And, and we had the luxury of doing it over, you know, a five, six year period of time, whereas a lot of states across the country are going to do this over a couple of months. And does that mean that right now in the state of Washington that there are no polling stations and no voting machines? Is that correct? No, it is not correct. And this is the little, little underreported uh, fact about vote by mail elections. You still have to have an in-person voting component. So each of our counties has to have at least one vote center open on election day. And during the 20 day voting period that we have, because of course we mail ballots out 20 days before the election. So um, that's to accommodate voters who may need assistance voting. You may have a voter who needs to use a, an assistive device. They may be low vision or blind. They may be dyslexic. There's a host of reasons why they might want to use that equipment. In our state, we just added same-day registration. So that means that any voter in our state on 
any given election can come into a county courthouse up till eight o'clock election night and register and vote. They can go to a voting center and do the same thing. So this is a game changer and this will be our first time doing that. Uh, I am anticipating anywhere from one to 2% of our voters will show up maybe all on election day, uh, but definitely on the Monday and Tuesday of election week. And, you know, in our state, that's 45 to 50,000 voters and concentrated, of course, in urban centers, very much like the Kentucky experience, where your population centers are going to see higher in-person turnout. So right now, our county election officers are working on that very issue. How do we manage the potential lines we're going to see on election day, uh, particularly in those high population centers? Right, especially during a pandemic. <laughs> That's <Yes>. going to be... <laughs> yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you about certain kinds of anomalies that can happen or that will happen. I'm curious about, for example, when you send out ballots, what about people who don't have an address, like homeless people, or I've been told Native Americans on reservations sometimes don't have an address, mm -hmm. people with P.O. boxes. I'm just curious how, how you deal with, with that situation. Oh, absolutely. We've been dealing with it for the 20 years we've been doing a pretty heavy vote-by-mail elections. So first and foremost, no one can live in their mailbox. So everyone has to have a physical place that they consider their residence. And of course, election officials use that to put a voter into a precinct so you know what type of ballot to send them. So um, so that's the first thing. And, and I think homeless voters were probably the first population that we had to deal with in Washington who didn't have a traditional address to receive their mail. So in terms of receiving mail, we try to have a lot of flexibility for that. And uh, for example, in our homeless population, before our governor's race, a lot of times they would precinct those voters at their county courthouse. And you know the voter would be able to come into the courthouse and pick up their ballot. That became a problem in the governor's race because suddenly Seattle had um, you know hundreds of voters who were registered at their county courthouse, and immediately people leapt to this is fraud and everything. Turns out these were homeless voters, and so uh, we've worked with a, a number of groups to make sure that that population is served. They're not disenfranchised because they don't have a physical uh, home, and we are able now with coding addresses, we can drop a pin, you know, quite frankly, underneath the freeway overpass on I-5 that they might sleep in and that, that they consider their home. So we can do that to precinct them and then, uh, you know, they can receive their ballot either, like you said, at a post office box or maybe a social service agency. I'm thinking of uh, the Union Gospel Mission, for example, that may allow them to receive ballots there. I'm glad you brought up the Native American communities because that's a, a population in our state that we've worked very closely with and with our county auditors to do outreach to, to really figure out what would best serve their community. Here in Washington, we have 29 recognized tribal nations in our borders and each tribal community has its own challenges or, or unique characteristics. So uh, an example I'll give you is the Yakima Nation, which is in Eastern Washington. And they have a very large population on tribal land and they have many non-traditional addresses. And what I mean by that is they aren't 
addresses that the post office typically can deliver to. So how do you get a ballot to those people? And again, the nice thing about having a new system that we just installed in the last year, we can now geocode those addresses and, and drop a pin, if you will, on the, on the location on the map that they live at. And then they've worked with the tribal leadership to allow their community center to be a place to receive ballots. So we can put them in the proper precinct and then we can send a ballot to that location that they can actually receive. Because what they told us is many of the, the members of their community don't live in a single place. Sometimes they couch surf, they, they may not have a home. And so how do you reach that voter? Well, that's the solution they came up with. And then the, the auditor also has cited ballot drop boxes on tribal land in, in the Yakima Nation. And then across our state, our counties have worked with those tribal leaders to either put a drop box close to the maybe entrance of the reservation land or on tribal land to allow their voters to have access to that drop box. How do you determine whether somebody is trying to impersonate a dead person, number one? And also what about households where a member of that household might be trying to force another member to vote a certain way. How do you mm -hmm. deal with, with those two issues? Sure, I'll break those up kind of separately. Yeah. So first, the deceased voters. Deceased voters for every election official in the country are challenging because, especially in a voting period, people pass away during the voting period. I mean, that's that's part of life. And many times they may not have the good courtesy to to die in their own state so for a state official to actually determine that that the voter has died takes time and the last thing any of us want to do is cancel a registration of someone like you who is still alive so usually there is a pretty robust process we go through to verify a death and so in washington state what we're doing is we're part of the eric project which is the electronic registration information center we have over 30 states now that are part of this compact and we data match our information. So we're looking for address changes. When someone moves from Seattle to Lexington and they get a driver's license in Kentucky, we, we would like to know that. And so we can send that voter, we can notify the county in, in Kentucky that the voter now lives in. They can reach out to that voter and say, hey, you know, where, where do you consider your residence? And they can update the registration. So we're doing that work. And we also compare our list to the um, social security death index. So now we have a list of people who the Social Security Administration has been notified have passed away, and now we can remove them from our list, but it's a timing issue. So like I said, I, I'll use my parents as an example. When my parents passed away, I'm sure that we notified the, the Social Security Administration, but when I contacted the Idaho clerk in this county they lived in, the clerk let me know that they already knew because they had gotten notification from Social Security. So that, you know, that's how the system works, but there can be lags and it can happen. Uh, in fact, it can happen where a voter passes away after they voted. And uh, you know, with the 20-day voting window, that does happen. So we, we have to take that into account. But what I've seen in my professional career in elections is you have well-intentioned family members who are trying to make good on uh, on their parents or their grandparents or their spouse's voting history. And usually when we find cases of a deceased person's ballot being voted, it's usually an elderly person, usually the, the surviving spouse. And so we found that Edith, died before she voted. And when we go and talk to Harold, uh, we find that Harold said Edith was a lifelong Democrat and she really wanted to vote for President Obama and she passed away before she could and I wanted to make sure she could. Now, is that fraudulent? 
you know, I don't think he was trying to sway the election. I think he was trying to be a good husband. And are we going to prosecute that for voter fraud? Probably not. But we are going to talk to Harold and we're going to make sure that he knows he can't do that in the future. So, you know, I, I think that that's the hard line to walk is, uh, you know, people who pass away keeping up with the information. On your second question, voter coercion. You know, that that is the, the biggest challenge of vote by mail. I think that of all of the criticisms that I've received through the you know 20 years we've been doing it here in, in Thurston County, that's the hardest one to definitively say these measures prevent that. For example, here in Washington, we have an address confidentiality program for domestic violence and stalking survivors. And we protect their address from public disclosure and by giving them a, a PO box that we receive their mail and send it to. And we also protect their voting records and their marriage records. So with that said, that's a, an outlet for people that have already been through some sort of trauma and survived it and are getting on with their lives. We have outlets for voters to be able to go into a county courthouse or a voting center to get a replacement ballot where they could get that and they could vote it. Um, but I'm not sure we can prevent every single um, circumstance where you might have a spouse or a person in their life that is going to, to uh, intimidate them and cause them to vote. But that would be a felony. So, you know, if they are forced to do that and want to report it, uh, we certainly would act on that information. But I haven't really seen a lot of that for the obvious reasons, I think. And then in terms of groups doing that, that's where it does get a little bit easier. You know, I typically will be in talking to groups and I will hear, depending on which way the room leans, if it leans left, I typically hear about churches that are, are doing this, you know, get together and voting and, and forcing their members to vote a certain way. And if I'm in a right leaning group, I tend to hear about unions doing the same. And it, again, in the 27 years I've done this, when I ask the follow on question, which church? Could you tell me which union? I get the, oh, what, well, uh, which nursing home? Well, uh, uh. so, uh, but, you know, again, I think that if, if you believe that's happening or if you've seen that happening, report it to election officials, report it to the secretary of state's office, report it to your county clerk, because, you know, you can't have people intimidating voters. And um, if we get reports of that activity, we do act on it. We do research it. And we're going to do our due diligence to, uh, to make sure that that activity isn't happening. If you just tuned in, this is Ruth Newman, your host of Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM, your local Louisville community radio station. And with us today is Kim Wyman, whose state of Washington has been conducting universal mail-in voting for many years now. Kim is serving her second term of office as the state's Secretary of State, and as such, she knows whereof she speaks when it comes to mail-in voting. So let's continue on with the conversation. Okay, now I have a question about voter error, because at a polling station, you've got someone there supervising who can answer questions and give you a new ballot if you make an error. But that's not the case in mail-in voting. So have you seen any upticks in voter error or like damaged ballots coming through the mail? Mm -hmm. I'm really glad you asked that because that's one of the many components that states have to put into place to make sure that the voter intent is carried out when their ballot is counted. And what I mean by that is a lot of times in mail-in situations, our voters get very creative. <laughs> That's a nice way of, of saying it. Um, 
they don't always follow directions exactly. So for example, um, they receive their ballot and they're told to fill in an oval next to the candidate that they want to vote for, but the voter may instead circle the name. So they, they circle, you know, John Smith. Now, if you took that ballot and just put it into the ballot reading machine, the machine would read that and, and record that as what we call an undervote, meaning the voter didn't make a single choice in that race. But if you actually get to a recount and you look at that ballot, it's very clear the voter intended John Smith to get his, his vote. So you have to, as election administrators, build in a set of guidelines of how you're going to process those ballots. Uh, what we have here in Washington is about a hundred page book that we call the voter intent manual. And it gives real world examples of ballots that we've seen in county canvassing boards across the state where the voters get creative. They underline the candidate's name. They may uh, fill in the oval for John Smith, but oh shoot, I wanted to vote for Brad Jones. So then how do they correct that error? And um, we have instructions for that, but if they don't follow them, we have kind of guidelines and rules. If the voter did this, here's how you count the ballot. And it's really important that states adopt these types of rules right now, before there's any election in play, before we get to November, when everybody's calm and cool and not emotional, because by November 3rd, we're all gonna be very emotional. And you look through all of these situations with a political lens. So states need to develop uniform standards for voter intent for their county boards of elections or canvassing boards or whatever that final group is that determines the ballot's outcome, giving them guidance. Because what you want, you, you have what, 120 election offices in your state, right? You want all clerks and all of their workers to do the same thing, whether they are in Lexington or uh, another city, you want it to be consistent across the state. And another thing to remind people of is that election officials don't get to reject ballots. I think there's a lot of talk right now being thrown out there that there's this uh, just willy nilly tossing out, you know, carelessly election officials just toss away ballots. We don't, we account for every one of them. And if a ballot is rejected, the county board, whatever it is in, in your state, and usually those are bipartisan boards, vote on those, each and every one, and keep a record of that. So if your ballot is rejected, they have to say why. If um, votes are rejected, you know, they have to say why. And it's really important county to county that they're doing that consistently. Because if you get into a close election, and let's say, God forbid, your US Senate race becomes closely contested and it goes to a recount, now you're going to have very high powered lawyers from Washington DC in each one of your counties, I'm talking from personal experience here, <laughs> and they are gonna scrutinize every policy and procedure. And what they're looking for is inconsistency between your counties. So if you have one county doing it one way and another county doing it another way, they're gonna to point to you're treating voters votes differently. And in the legal world, that's disparate treatment. And as we know from the Voting Rights Act, you have to treat all voters equally. So you, you've absolutely hit on one of the important parts of the election is that our all of our election officials have to be very consistent in how we do our jobs. And does that also include how a person can challenge that rejection and, and get their vote counted after the fact. It does, and, and probably the area that um, I would, if I was gonna talk to Secretary Adams, one of the recommendations, and I have actually, but one of the recommendations <laughs> I would make to him is that um, you wanna have a real clear 
set of rules for your signatures, because I'm going to assume that Kentucky is going to compare the signatures on their return envelopes or their absentee ballot requests to the registration signature on file. And so what happens when you do that process is one of two things. The voter's signature may be different or the voter may forget to sign it entirely. And so you have to have sort of processes, again, that are uniform across the state on how you're gonna handle that. So if you're going to say, the voter has to get it right on the first pass, we're not gonna give them any chance to cure that signature or, or send in a new one. You have to accept that you're gonna have a very large number of ballots rejected. And I'm just talking from Washington experience. Now, on the other hand, if you educate voters in advance, make sure you sign your envelope, sign it here, make sure you sign your absentee ballot request form, instruct the voters on what they need to do to be successful, then you're going to have a lower rate of rejection. And then finally, the third option is giving voters a second chance, which we do here in Washington. So when your ballot comes back with a signature that doesn't match, we actually send the voter a notice, the county election officials do, that says, Ruth, your signature appears to have changed. Could you please um, verify that you've returned your ballot and uh, give us your updated signature? And that does two things. One, it gives you a second chance as a voter to sign your envelope. But more importantly, if you haven't returned your ballot, it's a security measure because I guarantee you, you will call your county clerk and say, I haven't returned a ballot. Now they can set that aside and they can investigate and prosecute that as voter fraud. So you have to have those things in place and establish them now before we're in the midst of an election and do it again, really consistently statewide. Something that I also found was that in this past primary, there were over 65,000 rejections nationwide due to people bypassing the deadline. Their ballot came in after. And I'm just curious to know in Washington how, how you deal with that, whether it's based on it getting in by the day of the election or whether it's based on it being postmarked by the day of the election. There is a big difference, and I think that that's going to be nationally a point of contention, and I'm already hearing some reports that that's litigation that's happening in some states to change rules where the absentee ballot has to come in before Election Day or by Election Day. Um, here in Washington State, we have a postmark, and I will tell you that voters love that. The media hates it. But I'm glad you asked that question because when the ballot is due is really important. And we're seeing nationally states that have a cutoff before election day or maybe eight o'clock election day that the ballot has to be turned into election officials, that there's litigation challenging that where they're saying it should rely on the postmark because a voter shouldn't be penalized if the USPS turns in a ballot to election officials late. Here in Washington, we have an actual cutoff of the postmark. So as long as the voter gets a postmark of election day or before, the ballot can be counted. And in our state, we have a 21 day window after election day that we certify the election. So as long as we get that postmarked ballot in before certification, we can count it. Um, now, the media doesn't like that. And a lot of voters don't like that because it means we have slower election results. So in Washington state to start building the expectation in Kentucky, because I think every state will see the same trend, we see half of our ballots returned election week. And what I mean by that is if we're going to get, and I think we're going to get 4 million ballots back in this election cycle, 2 million of those ballots are going to come in on the Monday, Tuesday, and as late as Wednesday or Thursday of election week. 
So county election offices right now are trying to gear up how they're going to process that kind of volume in this very high profile year. And it's just really important that voters know when that cutoff is. So our state not only has prepaid postage, which we just added two years ago, we have ballot drop boxes for our voters. And these are staffed by our county election offices. We have 500 located across the state. They close promptly across the state at eight o'clock on election night. And it's a great place for voters because they can drop their ballot in for 24 hours a day for the entire 20-day voting period. And um, they can have a high assurance level that county election officials get their ballot. And in those final voting period days, you know, Monday and Tuesday in particular, we recommend voters use the drop boxes to ensure that the, their ballot gets on time. And we do a lot of education about the cutoff. And I mention all of this because we've seen our rejection rates for late postmarks dramatically drop in the last five years because we've done a lot of education and given voters a lot of options to return their ballots on time. That's great. Also, in line with that, do you do pre-canvas counting? So when, when uh, mail-in ballots come in early, they get counted right away? Uh, that's a great question. And again, something states need to think about now and really standardize now. I can tell you with half of the ballots, so 2 million ballots coming in before Friday or by Friday of the election cycle, um, if our county auditors didn't start processing them early, we would have really, really late results. So um, our state law allows them to begin processing ballots 10 days before election day. And what I mean by that is they can check the signatures and they can actually do that as soon as ballots come in. But 10 days before election day, they can not only check the signature, verify it, give the voter credit. So we have in their record that they've already had a ballot returned. And then they can start opening those envelopes and inspecting those ballots for the things I talked about related to voter intent. Did the ballot get mangled in the postal equipment and does it need to be duplicated because it can't run through a machine because of the tearing and and manipulation of the, the ballot? Do we need to mark the voters' choices in a way that the machine can read them? All of those things take time. So yes, absolutely, election officials need that time before election date. Now, what's important is you build in very stringent controls that you're not producing any results of any kind. Um, so our, our county auditors cannot, by law, produce any report that shows any results. If they do, they're committing a felony. And it would be illegal and it would be prosecuted. So we have a lot of controls in place at the county level to prevent that from happening. And the counties are very good at monitoring that, but they have to have that time to prepare or they just physically won't be able to get through the volume. And that's true across the country. And you are listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM All-Volunteer Community Radio with me, your host, Ruth Newman. And we are talking with Kim Wyman, Republican Secretary of State for Washington State. And this is a state and a Secretary of State, both with many years of experience holding elections with universal mail-in voting being their standard operating procedure. Okay, now I want to get to a hot, real hot topic, fraud, mm -hmm. voter fraud, because our president has said that mail-in voting is going to lead to, and I quote, a rigged election, thousands of forgeries, robbed mailboxes, illegally printed ballots that are printed by foreign countries, 
that uh, drop boxes are insecure and subject to fraud. And there's a whole list of accusations made. So how do you respond to that? Well, I think that President Trump is the, the most high profile critic of elections that I've ever had, but realize that these kind of accusations have been made about voting by mail and absentee ballots for the whole 27 years I've worked in this field. So this is what election administrators do, is we build in the controls to inspire confidence in our harshest critics. So I can't really respond to all of the allegations of what he thinks might happen, but I can respond to what we do here in Washington and what we've seen in terms of fraud. So I'll start there. In 2018, we compared our voter history, so the record in each voter's voter registration rolls that shows whether they cast a ballot or not. We compared those histories to other states and as part of that ERIC consortium I talked about. And what we found here in Washington is that we did have 142 cases of people who either voted more than once in the 2018 election or voted on behalf of a deceased family member. Now we have turned those over to our counties for more research and they are turning those over to their prosecuting attorneys for prosecution. If they fail to do that, we as a state are gonna turn those over to the FBI for investigation because that is in fact voter fraud. It is a felony in my state, but that 142 voters is out of 3.2 million ballots cast. Is it acceptable? No, no level of voter fraud is acceptable. Is it rampant fraud? No. Uh, it's 0.04% of our ballots cast that were cast, you know, fraudulently. So, you know, I, I always like to make the analogy of, of elections are like the banking industry. So right now we both build a lot of controls to prevent fraud. We have measures to detect it in place, but ultimately if someone wants to walk into a bank and shove a gun into a teller's face and steal money, they can. And then we, we have a whole investigation and then they're brought to justice and they're prosecuted. And the election system is very similar. We have a lot of controls and, and barriers in place to prevent fraud. But ultimately, if someone wants to try to cheat, they can. And we have ways to detect it and we will address it as it happens. So if, if it is some sort of rampant fraud that's detected and it, it may affect the outcome of an election, we, we will go to a court and the court may ask us to uh, redo the election. So the process is in place. And you know what, what county election officials are doing now across the country and local election officials in, in townships across the country is trying to build in those security measures for, for expanding absentee voting and vote by mail elections. So uh, like I said, here in our state, the linchpin is the voter signature. So this idea that you could just massively produce signatures and, and get ballots fraudulently counted is just not what I think is gonna happen in Washington state because I have that much confidence in the security of our process. The idea that a foreign government could mass produce ballots and ballot envelopes, and they may do that, but election officials will detect it when it comes in. Each county produces their own ballot materials, their individual ballot that has timing marks and coding on it that makes it unique to their county and that election. The mail out envelopes have uh, barcoding and things related individually to each voter. So the, the government would have to get all of that right for it to get past election officials in the first place. And they're gonna be able to sort those out when they receive them. Now, if they get inundated by millions of ballots, yes, that's gonna be a problem and it will slow things down, but they'll be able to, to do that. And you know what I really want, want voters to take away is that election officials work very hard to build in those controls at a polling place 
There are reasons why you have a, a poll book on election day. There are reasons why you have IDs. In our state, we've had an ID check at the time of voter registration since 2006. We require a, a Washington State ID card, a Washington State driver's license, or the last four of the voter social security number. And we actually verify those against those databases to make sure that the person registering on a form is a real person. And we've had very good success with that. 98% of our, our registrants, our applicants, provide one of those three IDs. And the remaining 2% have alternative ID options that have worked really well in our state. So um, we do that at the time of voter registration. It's it's the security linchpin that sets up the rest of the process. And what's happening in Washington is happening in every state across the country. Now, I will tell you, each state has its own spin on that, and they have maybe a different way of approaching it. And that's because we have 50 different state legislatures who have their own political, cultural differences and want their election to be their election. And so federally, we need to respect that. That's a good thing. And now that's where um, voters should have confidence and should be reaching out to their local election officials to find out what they're doing in their county or their local jurisdiction to, to protect their votes. Yeah, in um, Kentucky, our state legislature just passed a photo ID law, and that's going to be, I guess, in use for this election. How can you have a photo ID law if you're doing absentee voting? Well, I can't speak to Kentucky's because I don't, I'm not familiar with your statutes, but like I said, in, in Washington, how we adopted that, and this was back in 2006 when we were still transitioning to vote by mail elections, we chose to do it at the time of voter registration, knowing in 2006 that that would not address, you know, the millions of voters who were already on the rolls, but from day forward, so for the last 14 years, We've been capturing that information for every person who updates their address or gets a name change or registers for the first time. So more and more of our voters are getting that, that ID check happening. And that is working well in our state and has withstood, quite frankly, a, a challenge by the Brennan Center in court that it was constitutional. According to its website, the Brennan Center for Justice works with the New York University Law School faculty and students to uphold American ideals of democracy and equal justice for all. It's uh, inspired by Justice William J. Brennan Jr.'s devotion to core democratic values, and it works to strengthen democracy, end mass incarceration, and protect liberty and security, according to its website. I think in Kentucky, how they roll that out is important, and it will be a challenge if you're going to move to absentee voting, how are they going to build in that mechanism to allow the voter to comply with whatever the ID law is and uh, have their absentee ballot counted? And I think that that's really where you're going to see the county clerks and the secretary of state's office work very hard to make sure that that's not a barrier to voting. You want to make right. sure you're not disenfranchising voters because of a process. But at the same time, if it's a security measure, you want to make sure you can successfully roll that out. And so I, I imagine, you know, from our experience in Washington, I imagine your county clerks and your secretary of state are going to work very hard to implement that law that the legislature passed in a way that serves all of your voters um, in the Commonwealth equally and, and allows for, uh, for the safe conduct of that election that's accessible. You know, I just wanted to comment, I have a table that I found on the Brennan Center's website, but it was produced by the Heritage Foundation, 
they were trying to prove that there was fraud in mail-in in all voting. Uh, yes. Mail, yeah. So the the states that they showed the table for were the ones that have mail-ins: Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Utah, Washington. And in periods of many years, like Colorado, from 2005 to 2018, they only listed 14 cases of fraud out of almost 16 million voters. Um, in Oregon, they had to go over 19 years in order to find 15 cases of voter fraud out of 15,476,000 voters. So all these states had similar numbers. It just kind of disproved their theory. <laughs> so have you ever actually prosecuted anyone for mail fraud in Washington? Uh, we haven't. The first time we were able to do the check that I talked about where we, we compared voter histories was 2016. And we did detect, I don't remember the number offhand, but but same types of numbers. It was a maybe close to 100 out of around 3 million ballots cast. And in that case, we turned those over to the local county auditor's offices and unfortunately didn't have any of those cases prosecuted. And a lot of that comes back to local prosecutors having to weigh, do I spend time prosecuting someone for voting fraud or someone for murder or someone for, you know, rape or some really violent crime? And and it just became a lower priority for them. So that's why this year, if the counties don't have the bandwidth or ability to prosecute, we are going to turn them over to the FBI and prosecute them at a federal level. So, but no, there hasn't been that, that prosecution in our state up to now. We're working with them though. And you are listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM, all-volunteer community radio, with me, your host, Ruth Newman. And we are talking with Kim Wyman, Republican Secretary of State for Washington State. And this is a state and a Secretary of State, both with many years of experience holding elections with universal mail-in voting being their standard operating procedure. And you know, we all saw what happened in Wisconsin with the shortage of poll workers because most of them are in their 60s, they're, you know, in that age mm -hmm. range. Shuttered, I know here in Louisville, we had only one place, I believe, where you could go vote on the day of the election. And it was just pandemonium, the long lines, the social distancing. And then in Wisconsin, the fact that so many people ended up infected with the coronavirus and getting sick. Are we too late at this point to be able to make that switch? Those of us who don't have mail-in voting <laughs> or no excuse absentee voting, are we too late? I thought we were too late back in March, to be quite honest. But with that said, we don't have an option to not. And I, I think that one of the challenges that I've seen in this election cycle that is alarming to me is the partisan rhetoric and the polarization that's being created by this sort of what I would call false binary choice that both parties are, are forcing us to make. On the right, you have this binary choice that unless you have full you know, in-person voting, anything short of that is, is going to be fraudulent. And on the left, unless you have full scale, every voter votes at home, you're going to have rampant voter suppression. And that's a false choice. Both sides are doing it to ramp up their bases. It's um, irresponsible, in my opinion, because what it does is it erodes confidence the public has in the process. 
every state in this country is going to have to come up with some sort of hybrid solution. Um, even states like Washington and Oregon and Hawaii and Utah are going to see people who have to vote in person. And it's a much smaller number than what you're all going to see in, in Kentucky, but we are going to have to deal with that. And the same is said for states like yours or maybe uh, Louisiana or Tennessee, who had very low numbers of people that voted by absentee ballot historically. They're going to have to ramp up a really robust absentee ballot system. And so what we need to do is give election administrators that space to be able to solve the problem in a way that works for their state. And you're absolutely hitting the other problem. There are so many problems in this election, it's hard to nail them all down. You know, that the highest risk group for contracting COVID-19 for you know, high mortality rates are people who are over 65 years old. That is the demographic of seasonal election workers. Whether you have a polling place or a vote by mail system, our workforce are predominantly retired people. So we're all getting hit with uh, scrambling to try to find workers for our in-person voting experience and for our vote by mail ballot processing. And I can tell you there's a national effort trying to connect with the business community and higher ed and the nonprofit community and anyone we can talk to, to uh, go and contact your local county or uh, state election officials and see if there are opportunities to work because we need people. Uh, I know in our state, we are we are just ramping that up ourselves. We have an August primary, but we're really looking to the November general when we're going to see really high volumes. And I say that, I mean, to give you perspective, we're anticipating between 60 and 70% turnout in our primary election. Wow. We will see probably 80 to 90% turnout in our general election. So we're going to have very heavy volume, a lot of ballots to process, and we're going to need a lot of people to help us do that. And that is true in every state in the, in the country. And uh, we're all working together to try to come up with ideas to get on people's radar that we need help. So let me ask you about the people who, who work in your administration to uh, process ballots when it's mail-in. They're professionals, right? they're not the volunteer poll worker. Are, are they the professionals and they tend not to be 65 and older so that you have a whole different demographic that's doing the work when it's mail-in than you do when it's voting at the polls? Again, this is part of that evolution that we've had in, in Washington. So each county, we have 39 counties in Washington. Each county has an election staff that is permanent full-time. These are professional workers that, that work for the county auditor or the elections director. And they vary in size based on the population of the county. But to actually conduct an election, they bring in seasonal election workers to do a lot of that ballot processing. And what we really saw was a transition from our polling place workers, those people that worked maybe six days a year for us and tended to be retired people that uh, you know had their civic duty and engagement. We use a lot of those workers to become our seasonal election workforce. And yes, absolutely, that's what's being affected. So for example, in King County, where our, our biggest city, Seattle is, the elections department there in, in King County hires anywhere from 300 to 500 election workers just to process mail-in ballots. And that, that varies in size in counties. Counties here in Thurston, where we are in Olympia, that's my former county, that's where I live, but it's a former county I oversaw. We would bring in between 50 and 100 people to, to work uh, on an election in, uh, in a presidential year, closer to 100 people to work uh, and process those ballots. So yes, that demographic is the same as it is for your polling place workers or your voting center workers um, in Kentucky. And right now, election officials are scrambling just to backfill those positions. Positions. 
And then we have to deal with COVID like everyone else. You have to have a crew of backup workers in case the, the poll workers or the election workers get sick during the voting period. And you have to have backups for the backup. <laughs> you need a lot of people. I'm just, it's mind boggling. <laughs> so for my listeners, could you give me any idea of what we as listeners and as you know voters could be doing to advance this effort? Is there anything we could be doing here in Kentucky? Yes, and, and yes, I, I give you a lot of gloom and doom and a lot of challenges, but let me start with one of the strengths of American elections is that we have local election officials who actually distribute and count your ballots. And in, you know, in Kentucky, it's your 120 election clerks that, that oversee the election in, in the Commonwealth. So that's a strength of the system. And remember, and don't lose sight of the fact that these are either elected or appointed officials who take an oath of office. They take an oath to uphold the U.S. Constitution and the Constitution and laws in their individual states or in the Commonwealth. So you know, don't lose sight of that. They they have the voters in their jurisdiction's best interests at heart and are working incredibly hard between now and election day to ensure that we have a really good election. Um, the second le level to that is what voters can do. There's a couple of things. The very first thing is right now, while you're thinking about it, go and check your voter registration information. Does your election official have your most current address? Did you get married or change your name? Is that updated in the, the database? Do it now, right now when we have a lot of time. So then if they do mail a ballot to you, it gets mailed to the, the right address on the first try. You know, share that with friends and family. Are you even registered to vote? That's probably the baseline question. So, you know, just make sure that your record and your family's record and your friend's records are up to date. That act alone will do more to help our elections be really well run in November because we'll have good data to, to be mm -hmm. mailing ballots out or putting you in the right poll book at the right polling location. Before you go on, I'll just insert, they can go to govoteky.com. They can find out about their registration. They can register to vote and they can also go to jeffersoncountyclerk.org. So go ahead. I'm sorry. That is perfect. That's the kind of information that it, it, as a voter, if you want to empower your friends and family and your social media reach, put that information out on your social media. Let people know that you just need to go to this site and you can update your information right now. One of the, the other things that we're facing with COVID-19 is we don't have the typical social functions that we would normally have in a presidential year. The county fair has been canceled. All of the, the local you know, get-togethers that we have as communities all canceled. And those were the traditional places that people registered to vote where you updated your registration. So now we're gonna have to utilize online as much as we can. And I'm, I'm really happy to hear that Kentucky has that. Uh, that's, that is empowering and, and that just shows that election officials in your state are doing a great job. Beyond that, again, I think if you have an interest in helping your local election official, contact them, see if they need workers, see if they need volunteers. If you are politically engaged and wanna observe the election, reach out to your local election official to see how you can do that. All of those things are gonna help them have resources to be able to be successful. And that's really what we need more than anything. If you are someone who is not in the COVID-19 high vulnerability category and would like to heed the call to help out in this November's presidential election, then here is some information for you. First of all, you must be a registered voter 
you cannot be a candidate during the election year. You also cannot be the spouse, parent, brother, sister, or child of a candidate who is to be voted for in that precinct. But you may serve in other precincts in which your spouse or relative is not on the ballot. Finally, you cannot change your party affiliation for one year prior to your appointment as a precinct election officer. So for more information, you can call the Jefferson County Clerk's Office at 574-5700. You can also email them at countyclerk at jeffersoncountyclerk.com. Or you can call the State Board of Elections located in Frankfurt at 502-573-7100. Well, I certainly appreciate your being on my show, Kim Wyman, Secretary of State for Washington. It has been a pleasure and it has been so enlightening. And I now have your email. Good, good, good. You can email or call me anytime. And uh, I really wish uh, wish you the best with your show. And thank you for taking on this topic and, and really focusing on elections. It's so important that we have trusted sources like you that are sharing information and getting it out to voters so we can have an election everybody can believe in. That was Kim Wyman, Republican, serving her second term as Secretary of State for the state of Washington, where universal mail-in voting has been in full force for many years. Washington ranks among the top states for election security, voter registration, and voter turnout. It also was the 2019 Clearinghouse Award winner for Outstanding Innovations in Elections and Election Management. So before I sign off, here is a parting thought. The isolation most of us are going through right now can be a time for soul-searching and reaching out in creative, innovative ways. Just as viruses can spread rapidly, so can new voices and new ideas grab hold and inspire all sorts of profound changes in our thoughts, habits, and actions. We need our media more than ever to be channels for change. And this station, WFMP 106.5 FM, needs your support to continue broadcasting for change. Your input, whether vocal, volunteer, or financial, is what keeps this station radioactive for you. So please go to forwardradio.org and click on Participate or Donate or both. And thank you so much for your support and for listening to Election Connection.